0: Oh yay, oh yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. In November, the New York Times published an essay by two law professors who chronicled an interesting phenomenon at the Supreme Court. The court, they said, is increasingly setting aside legally significant decisions from the lower court's as if they had never happened, invalidating them in brief procedural orders. It's an important essay. The authors got less than 1,000 words to discuss their work. Fortunately, we have more time. So joining us today to talk about their study are the authors of the essay, Lisa Tucker of the Drexel University Thomas R. Klein School of Law, and Stephanie Lindquist from Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor, School of Law, Professor Tucker, Professor Linquist, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to see you, Amy, or hear you at least.
1: Thanks for having yes. us.
0: So let's start with some background before we actually get to your essay. Can one of you explain? There's a, a concept at the heart of your essay called Munzingware Vacator, which is not something that either rolls off the tongue or is is a household
2: name. So why don't you explain what it is? Sure. And this is Lisa Tucker, by the way. I should say that before I started working on this project, I had never heard of Munsing Vacator. And once I started working on it, everybody sort of covers their ears because it sounds so awful. Nina Totenberg emailed me that it sounded like some terrible disease. (laughs) And I guess depending on your perspective of what the court is doing, I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But Munsingware is a case um, involving an underwear company um, from 1950. And the issue in that case was that a dispute had become moot before it could be reviewed by a higher court. And in that case, the Supreme Court said, look, it's not really fair if the case becomes mute, uh, moot, excuse me, and there's no opportunity to review it. And so what we're going to do instead is we're going to vacate the lower court decision. And that will allow the parties to relitigate. There won't be any claim preclusion or issue preclusion involved. And the parties will be able to relitigate their claims because it will be as if the case had never happened. Now, Muncengwar said a couple of things. It said, first of all, we want to look at this idea of mootness as not being something that happens intentionally. And in fact, a few several years later, in 1994, um, the Supreme Court heard another case, U.S. Bank Corp in which they talked about the fact that parties have been using Munsingware as sort of a settlement tool, that if they agreed to settle their differences, then they would ask for Munsingware vacator, which was at the time being freely given. And Justice Scalia wrote in US Bank Corp, you know, the, the we're not gonna allow it to be a, a manipulative thing, right? It can't be something that you use intentionally to manipulate your litigation. It has to be where the mootness arises out of happenstance. And that word happenstance is very important. Happenstance would be, you know, um, mootness occurring from events beyond the party's control. And certainly, Munsingwar should not be used to vacate a lower court opinion if what if the party that actually caused the mootness then wants vacator. So the idea is you can't make a case be moot to make the lower court precedent go away. And this is the issue that we were seeing here in um, the cases that we looked at more recently before the Supreme Court. How did they become moot? Who mooted them? Who asked for vacatur? And did the Supreme Court grant the vacatur?
0: So how did you first notice this trend, this phenomenon that you describe in your essay?
2: Uh, well, that is a story. And I I am so honored well, to be on the podcast. I would just ask your listeners to know that I had recently jaw surgery, so I sound very strange, and I'm very sorry about that. You don't sound strange at all, but we're <laughs> delighted you're here. Thank you. Um, so the way this arose was actually um, through a case that I was helping out on. My husband Adam Bonin is an election attorney in Philadelphia. And he had a case that was supposed to be this little bitty case. It involved a case in a small county in Pennsylvania where mail-in voting had occurred. This is in the 2020 election. And there was one little glitch with one election involving a judge. And in Pennsylvania, judges are elected. And what happened was that the Republican candidate had gotten more votes something like 200 more votes than the Democratic candidate. And let me say that this is out of 65,000 votes. But there were about 250 mail-in votes that have been sent in, and they were received on time, and they were perfect in every way, except that there was no date on the outside of the envelope. Now, this is important to know because The Pennsylvania statute says you have to have a date on the outside of the envelope. But there was an issue of whether these ballots should be counted because the the date had no function to it. And so if the ballots were received on time, there was no reason why the date mattered. And so the issue was whether they would count these mail-in votes to see whether the Republicans still had won the election or whether the Democrat actually had overtaken him with these mail-in votes. Now, I won't bore you with the whole thing except to say that this went up and down in every state court and in every federal court, with the courts reversing each other, until finally the Third Circuit said that the materiality clause in the Voting Rights Act allows us to count these votes. In other words, the date on the outside of the envelope is immaterial, therefore, the thing we have to do is enfranchise the voters. We have to count their votes. And the Democratic candidate, a guy named Zach Cohen, ended up winning by five votes out of 65,000 votes in this election. His opponent, David Ritter, was not happy about this, the Republican. And so in a case called Ritter v. Migliori, they went up to the Supreme Court and asked for vacator. And the Supreme Court granted it, where vacator. And I was like, what the heck is this? I don't know what this is. And I started looking at it. And then I wanted to see some other cases. And I know this is a really long answer to your question, Amy, but I kind of got down a rabbit hole and realized that over the last six or seven years, the court was granting this kind of vacator over and over and over again in a way that it had not been doing previously. So what do you think explains this trend?
1: I'm happy to answer that question. This is Steph Lindquist. There, there's a number of factors that are likely explain the trend. So we looked at the requests for Vacator over the last, uh, what would it be about 25 years, since 1994, since Bancorp, and a little more than 25 years. And we looked at the request, you know, what requests were made, and then how did the court address those requests. And what we found was that from 1994 to about 2016, 2017, the court would have about three, two to three, sometimes no requests to have a lower court decision vacated. Um, And then in 2016, we see a bit of a surge. So in some years since then, we see as many as 12, 13 requests for vacator and then uh, a, a good proportion of those requests being granted. And so, if you look at the graph of these cases, you really see the trend in recent years, and especially in the past five years, with, you know, we're not talking about hundreds of cases, of course, but we're talking about, uh, you know, multiples of what uh, happened in previous terms. And so, thinking about why this might be, a couple of factors come to mind. One is that um, in a couple of cases, some of the conservative justices have dissented from cert denials. So, the way this works procedurally is if you ask, you're you're seeking certiorari, and then the court can consider whether or not to grant the writ of certiorari, vacate the lower court decision, and remand the GVR, and that's how the vacate the va- the vacator happens. And so uh, we could, we also looked at the cert denial, so that's the alternative way that these cases are are resolved. And what we see is in some of those cert denials, dissents by. Uh, some of the conservative justices saying, hey, we would have taken this case and we would have vacated it under Munsingware. So there may be some signaling going on that uh, that Munsingware vac- uh, vacator is now sort of more on the table than it had in the past. And we certainly know of instances in the past history of the U.S. Supreme Court in which the justices have signaled these kinds of uh, sort of orientation changes towards certain procedural maneuvers that can take place at the court. So there's that. The second thing is that since 2016, of course, we had two major events in U.S. history. One was the Trump administration. The Trump administration generated quite a lot of litigation, as we all know, under the Emoluments Clause, the First Amendment Twitter cases, uh, immigration cases. And when the Trump administration lost the 2020 election, some of those cases became moot. And what um, and so that that shift obviously had Um, uh, an impact in terms of Munsingware because the new administration, in some of those cases, Solicitor General actually requested the Baker because of, of, you know, sort of future presidential impact of those decisions on other presidential administrations. So the Trump administration had a big role to play here. And so did, uh, and by the way, many of those decisions that uh, involve the Trump administration produce liberal results for example, finding standing in emoluments clause cases, et cetera. So those cases were wiped from the books, even though, you know, they were major cases involving a presidential administration. And in addition, COVID happened and then went, it didn't go away, but it certainly receded in terms of its impact on our daily lives. And some of the cases involve. Uh, state governments with certain restrictions that they imposed or didn't impose during COVID that gave rise to litigation, and once those restrictions or regulations sunsetted by their own terms, cases became moot. So, um, so there was there was sort of a not only was I think a signaling coming from the Supreme Court, and, and and clearly the trend is there that the cases that were vacated were primarily liberal decisions below. So we have signaling from the court. We have a Trump administration generating a lot of litigation that that was mooted when the Trump administration left office and we had COVID, among other uh, grab bag of other types of cases.
2: The other thing I'd like to mention is that, of course, during the Trump administration, we got three new justices. And these new justices were widely considered to be more conservative. And so what we may be seeing is, one, an interest in using Munsing Vacator. And remember that all three of these justices were Supreme Court clerks. So they would know about Munsing wehr They would understand the procedural stuff. They may have been holding it and saying, hey, why isn't this tool being used more? But also those three justices pulled the court right. And as Stephanie said, what we saw was the conservative losses
1: in the appeals court being wiped off the books. The other the other sort of flip side of this coin is what did they what was the nature of the cases in which they denied cert and did not grant the vacator that was requested and what happened in those cases below and we're still analyzing those cases but it appears that for the most part uh, when cert was denied and vacator was was denied as well uh, that many of those decisions actually had a conservative outcome so to, f- to sort of follow up and dovetail with what Lisa just said about, the outcomes of the court of the cases below that were vacated, the cases below that were not vacated tended to be decided in a more conservative direction. I do think it's it's worth pointing out that um, we're in the midst of, of writing a law review article about these cases, and we're still parsing through the data. So we're pro- providing you with some preliminary results, especially those that go back to 1994. But the trends are emerging as we've described them.
0: Yeah, that's important. I guess I want to follow up on sort of what you've described. Lisa, at the start of the podcast, you talked about Muncie and then US Bank Corps in which Justice Scalia suggested that Muncie is limited or should be narrowed. How do, if you look at the cases in which it was granted and which it was denied, do you look at some of the cases Particularly the more recent cases in which the court granted Muncingware vacator and say, oh yes, those still meet the court's criteria, or you know, has that shifted as well? I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is, has the court sort
2: of changed the criteria without actually saying so? Well, it's interesting because Munsee from 1950 and Bancorp from 1994 also kind of differ in their standards. And it seems like the parties will invoke the standard that works better for them. And in Munzingwa, the court said, you know, this is the obligation. You have to do this to keep things fair on a collateral estoppel basis. And in VanCorp, it's made to sound like it's much more discretionary. And so what you see when you look at the briefing from the parties is that they'll choose which case they use as their lead case, that this is an obligation, that you have to do this, that this is standard procedure, or that it's only supposed to be discretionary and that it uh, should only be used, you know, um, in exceptional circumstances. So it's a little difficult to know. It does seem, though, that the court has changed its practice, even though it hasn't changed its rule, because those two rules would seem to conflict with each other, But all of a sudden, the court starts granting vacator right and left. And even in cases sometimes where the court denies cert, we'll see, for example, Justice Alito or Justice Gorsuch. It's usually two out of the three of Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas saying, no, 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 we would have vacated. So it's really hard to know. But it also is easy to see how it could be used as a strategic litigation tool. Steph mentioned that. The SG's office in the Biden administration has asked for vacator several times in those Trump-involved cases from, say, 19 and 20 before Biden took office. And it's easy to see why they might want vacator besides binding a future administration. If the Republicans were to appeal these cases in which Trump lost and the court were to grant cert, It might be that the Biden administration is very, very afraid of making law at the Supreme Court level on cases where they would be likely to lose. Right. If you think about the typical ideological leanings. And so this might be a let's cut our losses type situation because we can get this case to go away instead of making
1: terrible precedent might be what the Biden administration is saying. You know, one thing I might add to Lisa's comments is that the, the confusion that is very evident in the briefs between Bancorp and Munsingware is, in some ways, it's it's based upon the language in those two opinions that Lisa mentioned, that, you know, one suggests it's discretionary and notes the importance, for example, Scalia and Bancorp notes the importance of percolation in the lower courts below, and that leaving precedents in place is actually has public value. And Vacator, of course, would eliminate, in in some cases, either a circuit court conflict or the beginning of one in which the circuit courts could talk to each other about what is the appropriate standard. In fact, in Ritter, there was a conflict over one element of the statute that was already uh, in place. And nevertheless, the Third Circuit decision was vacated. And so this confusion exists not only at the Supreme Court level, where you can see it evident in the briefs petitioning for writ of certiorari, but also in the lower courts, because the lower courts can also grant monsignor vacator for district court decisions. So the Court of Appeals, for example, can decide that a case has become moot on the way up to the circuit court, and they can themselves then vacate the district court opinion. But you can see when looking at cases involving the circuit courts under this standard that there's confusion in the circuit courts as well.
0: What are the implications of this trend, you know, both in the short term and over the long term?
2: I think one important one, and then I'll let Steph take part two because there are several, but I think one important one is this idea that's been written about a lot lately, that the court seems to be disregarding precedent when it doesn't have to. And of course, the most, you know, headline case with this was Dobbs, that Dobbs, overruled Roe without regard for precedent, according to some people. And we saw the chief trying to sort of find a narrow pathway through where you could both preserve precedent and get a certain result in Dobbs. And this idea that the court isn't respecting precedent and that this is harming the legitimacy of the institution is one that's being discussed a lot on the blog, among scholars, and I think even it has reached the point where the American public is starting to understand what that means, what precedent means, what doing away with precedent means. And this is a a piece of that puzzle, I think, in the sense that We see a different kind of disregard for precedent, and that is in the appeals courts, where SCOTUS, where the Supreme Court says, we're going to vacate this lower court decision, let's say from the Third Circuit or the Fourth Circuit or whatever. It means that that decision isn't, there's no precedential weight to that decision. There is no law on point anymore. And that's a really big deal, because as anybody who listens to the podcast knows, the Supreme Court decides, you know, what, 70 cases a year? (laughs) Yeah, the appeals courts decide thousands of cases a year. And so really where most of the law in this country is made is in the circuit courts of appeals, right, and in state courts. And so if the Supreme Court can step in and just undo precedent in the circuit courts, that's a very, very big deal. Steph, I know you had another
1: point. Yeah, I mean, I think you can also look at this as part of a larger issue involving the shadow docket, which we've heard so much about in the news and I know has been on the blog, et cetera, Steve Laddock's work. This is certainly part of that. It's it's a small part. We're not talking about hundreds of cases, as I mentioned earlier. But it nevertheless, sort of fits as of a piece with the court rendering decisions that have significant impact on the state of the laws, as Lisa mentioned, but doing so without any kind of full uh, written opinion on the merits. Now, of course, the court once once a case is mooted, um, under Article Three, the court is limited from what it can do on the merits. To be sure, and there are equities at play here. You know, there's no, there's certainly no question that if a case is mooted by happenstance as you're in the process of appealing a lower court judgment, it does seem unfair that that lower court judgment should be able to stand and then have your your appeal rights sort of eliminated as as a result of that mootness. Understood. We understand that. But we're looking at this as one piece of a larger puzzle of the Supreme Court right now, where we're seeing some obvious changes in in how they uh, operate. And again, back to the shadow docket, this is certainly part of the shadow docket. Nobody talks about Munson in the press. There's you know, except for us now, and we like to think of it as being one piece of a larger puzzle of, of the Supreme Court's operating with very few merits decisions, as Lisa mentioned, but kind of a vast reservoir of uh, the iceberg under the water of other actions that the court is taking that have uh, significant consequences. So, one thing that is I've always thought about with
0: the shadow docket, you know, Steve Laddock has very ably tracked. The rise in requests under the shadow docket, and I've always thought that, you know, part of what may be going on—and certainly not the only part—but part of it is the idea that litigants see other people go to the Supreme Court on an emergency basis, and are therefore now more likely to ask for emergency mm-hmm. relief, you know, because there's a, you know, there's a chance. Do you think that that
1: is similarly in play here? I, I think there's probably no question of that. I mean, this is a learning exercise we're seeing in, in real time, where, especially as I mentioned, because of some of the dissents from some of the cert denials where the conservative justices have argued in favor of, of vacating the lower court decision. Litigants and and smart lawyers are looking at what the Supreme Court says and what the individual justices say in their, in their dissents from even a denial of certiorari. So I, I do think it's likely that, and we've seen a surge, as I said, in the last five years of many more requests for Vacator than we had seen previously.
2: And remember, I think it's important for us to remember, and maybe this is for people who are listening to the podcast, but don't practice before the Supreme Court or who just listen because it's fascinating, this stuff. Even Munsingware is fascinating is that the court doesn't have to vacate. The court always has another choice, which is to deny cert. And they do do that, even when there are requests, although not much recently. And they do that in tons of other cases. And it seems impossible that over the period between, say, 1994, which was US Bancorp, and 2016 or so, when we start to see this spike, this surge, that there weren't tons of cases that became moot. Right. A lot of times cases become moot on their way to the Supreme Court, and yet we did not see this effect of vacating those decisions. And and that's what's so important. I want to switch gears
0: because I could continue to talk about this for hours, but uh, I do want to switch gears and talk to you about the process a little bit. How does one place an essay in The New York Times
2: and then how does that work? Well. The first thing you should know is that they read every single submission that comes into them. The second thing is that I would not recommend trying to paste a piece about Muncingware Vacator or something equally as obscure, unless you can have somebody who the paper knows vouch for you, which we did. We were very lucky that Erwin Chemerinsky was interested in this project and was willing to vouch for us because we're just two ordinary law professors, right? No, but... (laughs) once they saw it, they were like, huh, this is kind of interesting, but we have no idea what you're talking about. And so the third thing I would say is that you should be prepared to have no vanity whatsoever, no ego about your work. It took us, what, three weeks, Steph, of back and forth, pretty much daily edits with the editor of the New York Times to boil this down into a piece that ordinary educated readers would be able to understand and maybe they wouldn't stop after the first two sentences because it was so boring. So I would say anything you're interested in, submit it. If there's somebody who knows your work, ask them to, you know, would you mind putting in a good word, but then be prepared for your work to be really, really scrutinized. The Times has a fact checker, checker with whom we worked extensively. And we were told by the op-ed editor that he also sent the piece out before publication to Adam Liptek and Linda Greenhouse, who are two Supreme Court experts affiliated with the Times, and that both of them said, yes, this is important and it's worthy of publication. So we felt very, very lucky that they accepted it. If we had it to do again, I think we would work hard to make our explanation simpler and more concise before we ever submitted it to the Times in the first place.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think a plug for Chris Conway, our editor at The Times and The Times process itself. I, I was very impressed with the level of detail and attention to accuracy that we received. And frankly, it improved our initial submission. Yes.
2: And it also improved, I think, our analysis for the law review article that we're going to be submitting soon to law reviews in the way that, very, very clear questions like yours, Amy, that asked us to really think about the implications and really think about the connections that we are making.
0: All right. This question is not such a question. How how long, how many words was your first draft?
2: Oh, God, 3,000 maybe? Yeah. Wow.
0: And it wound up
2: you know, under 900? Yes. Yes. It's a lot of yeah. editing. Including including adding in every single case, which we had not originally done. And our editor, Mr. Conway, wanted us to break out every single case so that the reader could understand there are abortion cases, there are border wall cases, there are voting cases, and so on. So that ended up taking up so much space. But that's okay. We have, we have saved. I always have a graveyard for all my edits and a document, a folder where I put everything that had to get cut. And you can always use it in something else. Very true. Very true. Uh, Last question before I let you go. What has the reaction been to your article? Have you heard from anyone at the court? I have not heard from anybody at the court. We have certainly heard from people, scholars and Supreme Court practitioners who would consider themselves to be on either side of the aisle. Steph, what what, what do you think the general reaction is?
1: Well, I think I think people are, you know, interested in this otherwise pretty obscure um, outcome for Supreme Court cases, especially, as I mentioned, as part of a, a kind of analysis of the shadow docket. And, you know, you get all kinds of It's So the first time I've ever published in the New York Times, and, and it's a real joy to hear from your colleagues that you work with 20 years ago and thought that they might have forgotten you. And you get an email saying, hey, that was a really interesting paper. Thank you so much for elucidating this otherwise completely, you know, obscure pattern uh, in Supreme Court decision-making. So we got a lot of, I I certainly, and I know Lisa did too, a lot of positive feedback from people who, you know, were just interested in this thing, this Muncingware thing that they'd never heard of before. And I got some pushback. I got some
2: pushback from people I know who would consider themselves to be more aligned with the conservative end of the court who said, well, what do you want them to do? And I just keep answering, deny cert. Um, you can always deny cert if a case is moot. Um, or at least let people know what is the rule. How exactly are you applying this rule? Be more transparent about it. And I think calls for transparency are the, you know, they're they're the practice of the day. And the court, I think, is, is making baby steps towards being more transparent. Very tiny ones. Tiny, tiny ones, but I think if we understand better, how exactly are you applying this doctrine? What standards are you using instead of just GVRI? You know, we're granting, vacating, remanding, and instructing the lower court to dismiss for mootness. Okay, so tell us how that works. I think that would be incredibly helpful.
1: Not only that, one final point on this, the trend. So whatever the explanation is for the trend. It's there. Um, Doesn't have to be some nefarious explanation for what's going on, frankly. There's, There's a lot of factors probably at play, but I think it's worthwhile acknowledging and recognizing that trend, which we saw clearly in the last several years with respect to these lower court decisions being vacated.
0: The essay is, How the Supreme Court is Erasing Consequential Decisions in the Lower Courts. It appeared in the New York Times on November 29th, 2022. Lisa, Tucker, Steph Linquist, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. And we will, we will await the Law Review article. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. This episode was produced and edited by Elena Erskine with help from James Ramoser and Angie Go.